0: No other figure has impacted history like Jesus. Yet today, he's often seen as a mythical character whose legend somehow increased over time. So what does the historical and archaeological evidence say about Jesus? In a few minutes, you're going to meet an archaeologist who has investigated discoveries connected to Jesus' birth, ministry, crucifixion, and resurrection. Exactly what has he found? That's our conversation today on The Land and the Book. Hey, welcome to the one-hour program that makes you feel like you're in Israel. Maybe that's because our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is there so often. I'm John Geiger with a quick thought here. Did you know that most Jewish people have never heard the gospel? Each week we talk about Israel, of course, and the Jewish people, and it's important to remember that
1: they, like everybody else, need to hear the good news. That's right, John. That's why Life in Messiah, a ministry in existence for over 130 years, is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people around the world. We've interviewed several Life in Messiah staff on our show, and we've enjoyed hearing what God is doing around the world through them. Now, Life in Messiah is offering a free gift to moody listeners. It's a resource called Reaching Jewish People for Messiah. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org Click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook, which highlights the need for the gospel among the Jewish people. And it will equip you with practical ways to share the good news with them.
0: All right, that said, let's get to a look at current events, stories from the Middle East, all happening this week. The crisis surrounding Israel's coalition government last weekend continued into this week. What is the latest on this boiling pot, Charlie? And how long can the government hold on to power?
1: Oh John, after just one year in power, multiple conflicts are threatening to sink the coalition boat. A member of the far left Moretz Party said she will never support the bill to continue extending Israeli rule of law to Jewish citizens living in the West Bank. She's joined in that position by a member of the Islamic Ra'am Party, also part of the coalition. At the opposite end of the spectrum, Two members of Naftali Bennett's own party have said they won't support the coalition because of its failure to support policies that are part of their party's core beliefs. On Monday, a member of the Blue and White Party in the coalition announced he planned to stop voting for coalition legislation to protest transportation reforms being implemented by the transportation minister, who's a coalition member from the Moretz party. Prime Minister Neftali Bennett said his government will only survive if the renegade MKs return to the fold. Now, pressure is being put on these members to align with the coalition or to resign so they can be replaced by other individuals who will support the coalition. But at least so far, they've refused to resign. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean the government will automatically collapse and have Netanyahu take over. Uh, if Netanyahu's party puts forward a motion to dissolve parliament, but that motion fails well, then his party can't do so again for another six months. And it's not entirely clear if he has the 61 votes needed. If the decisive vote to dissolve parliament comes from a member of Naftali Bennett's party or Gideon Sa'ar's party, well, then Yair Lapid becomes interim prime minister. And that's something those on the right don't want to have happen. And so the alternative, of course, is to have new elections. But if new elections are called, but Netanyahu isn't able to form a majority government, well, then it's likely that members of his own party will push for him to be replaced by someone else. Conservatives are a solid majority in the Knesset today, and that's likely to remain true should there be new elections. But politics and personalities and personal egos have been keeping these different parties and their leaders from joining together in a coalition. For Israel's sake, they need to put aside what's good for them personally and focus instead on what's best for the country. Uh, John, we'll have to watch and see if that's going to happen or not.
0: You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Charlie Dyer, our host, a Middle East expert and pastor, and just a guy who has studied Israel all his life. I'm John Geiger with Story 2. Tension between Israel and Iran continues to grow, and over the past two weeks, those tensions spilled over
1: into Syria and Turkey. Could an Israeli attack against Iran be imminent? Well, the conflict between the two countries has definitely been heating up. Iran sent terror groups into Thailand and Turkey to try to assassinate Israeli tourists. Thankfully, at least so far, those plans have failed. Israel, meanwhile, has started to implement what it's calling the Octopus Doctrine. Rather than just playing with the tentacles, they said they will now go for the head. And that seems to coincide with the recent assassination of several Iranian nuclear scientists engineers, and military leaders in and around Tehran. Iran has been using commercial airline flights to smuggle upgraded parts into Lebanon for Hezbollah rockets. Israel responded by bombing the two main runways of Damascus's airport and a private terminal used for the transfer of people and parts. They also threatened to bomb one of Syrian President Assad's palaces. Meanwhile, Iran aired footage of a secret underground drone base, suggesting they now have the ability to launch a massive drone strike against Israel from Iran itself. Israel countered by demonstrating its laser defense system, currently under development. Israel is also behind several recent reports on Iran's continued push for nuclear weapons, claiming Iran now has enough enriched uranium to build four crude nuclear bombs within three months. Israel also conducted a series of well publicized military exercises mimicking the launch of an aerial attack against Iran's facilities. But now here's the major unanswered question Is all this the prelude to actual conflict, or are both sides using threats and intimidation to get the other side to blink or to force the West to get more involved? Iran wants the West to cave into their demands for a one sided nuclear agreement that provides Iran with economic relief from sanctions. Israel wants the West to be so afraid of a nuclear-armed Iran that they'll pressure Iran to abandon its nuclear program or face a combined attack by Western and Israeli forces. Now right now, we just don't know if all the posturing and threats from all these sides are real or just a bluff. Story number three, the rise of authoritative regimes
0: worldwide is certainly a worrisome trend from Russia's continued attack in Ukraine To China's threats against Taiwan, to Turkey's and Iran's growing alliance with Venezuela, these regimes are taking advantage of what they see as an inherent weakness in Western democracy, which includes an unwillingness to stand against aggression. How concerned should the West be over the aggressiveness and growing alliance between these countries?
1: John, the parallels between what's happening today and the late 1930s, I think, are alarming. You know, back then it was the authoritarian regimes of Germany and Italy and Japan that were pushing to expand at the expense of weaker neighbors, while the world was reeling economically back then from the Great Depression. Today, we're seeing a similar pattern in Russia's invasion of Ukraine in the middle of another economic crisis. The response from the West has been more forceful, but it hasn't stopped Russia. We've been reluctant to supply Ukraine with all the modern weapons they need. Uh, now the Ukrainians have fought well, but they're wearing down. Now part of the reason for the West's reluctance is that Russia has not so subtly threatened to use nuclear weapons. They've also cut off the supply of oil and natural gas to the West, and they've created a worldwide food crisis by withholding grain exports. But beyond Russia, we're also seeing the rise of authoritarian countries like Turkey and Iran. Turkey's blackmailing NATO, threatening to veto the membership of Sweden and Finland unless they change their foreign policy toward the Kurds. Turkey is also threatening to invade Syria in a new ethnic cleansing operation against the Kurds. Turkey's president recently met with Venezuela's president and said Turkey will continue to support, quote, brotherly Venezuela, while he also condemned the one-sided sanctions against them. Well, those sanctions are the ones that we've imposed here in the U.S. Iran then met with Venezuela's president and signed a 20-year cooperation deal for defense, energy, and finance. China continues to make frequent incursions into Taiwan's coastal waters and their airspace while threatening to invade. Now, all those threats are real, and the West does need to be concerned. We're still the strongest nation in the world, but we can't underestimate the influence of alliances between the world's major authoritarian governments, Russia, China, Turkey, Iran, and Venezuela. Two of them are nuclear powers, with a third pushing to join the nuclear club. Now, as I said earlier, the parallels to the 1930s are significant, but there's one profound difference. Back then, Germany, Italy, and Japan didn't have nuclear weapons or a way to effectively attack the U.S. mainland. Today, they can. Now, this is a time when I think, John, we as believers need to be praying for our leaders and asking God to give them wisdom in knowing how best to respond to this aggression.
0: And that's a look at current events here on The Land and the Book, where right now we're about to give away a copy of Jonah. Beyond the Tale of a Whale. We had author Mark Yarbro on the program some weeks ago. What a great conversation. You know, we're all familiar with the story of Jonah, but a lot of people... Kind of see it as a simplistic moral tale, almost a a story for kids. There's a whole lot more to the life story of Jonah. And Mark does a beautiful job of unpacking all of that in a real readable fashion. How do you win the copy of Jonah Beyond the Tale of a Whale? Well, you're going to email us at at moody.edu, And you're going to give us two things. One, your statement, why I recommend the land and the book to my friends why I recommend The Land and the Book to my friends. And second, be sure to include your shipping address in case you win, all right? Again, you're entering to win a copy of Jonah Beyond the Tale of a Whale. Really, a great book endorsed by Tony Evans and Louis Giglio and Andy Stanley. Love for you to win this copy. Email us book at moody.edu. Why you recommend The Land and the Book and your shipping address. Coming up, excavating the evidence for Jesus. other figure has impacted history like Jesus. Yet today, he's often seen as a a mythical character whose legend increased over time. So what does the historical and archaeological evidence say about Jesus? Well, you're about to meet an archaeologist who has investigated firsthand the discoveries connected to Jesus' birth, ministry, crucifixion, and resurrection. Exactly what does the evidence say? Find out as you join us now for segment two of The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and when Jesus told us to make disciples, well, he intended that we share his gospel message with our Jewish friends, too. Here's something to think about along those lines. Sharing a New Testament with your Jewish friend. Good idea, bad idea. Beth Tavlin is on the administrative staff at Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago. You've got a story along these lines.
2: I do. I do. I was invited to a friend's holiday gathering, and there was going to be a Jewish man there mm-hmm. and his girlfriend. And so I took some New Covenant or New Testament books and wrapped them in Hanukkah paper and gave them to my friends and uh, presented them as the potentially the most valuable gift you will ever receive. Really? And left it at that. A year later, I was invited back to the same family's party and this man who I gave the New Testament to yes. came up to me and said, wow, I gave this book to someone I worked with and it changed his life. And I said, oh, that's great. But do you want another one? And he said, no, I don't. But it really did change his life. He, he started going to church. He started reading it all the time. He started sharing with me. It was really amazing what the Lord did through that one little book. Okay,
0: not to the friend that you'd intended it for, but
2: to his friend. Right. Yeah. You well, never know.
0: That's right. You never know who God has in mind. Thanks, Beth. Beth Tavlin here on The Land and the Book. Dr. Titus Kennedy is a professional field archaeologist currently directing archaeological projects in Bible lands. At the same time, he's researching, writing, and teaching in the field of biblical archaeology. In addition to being an adjunct professor at Biola University and a research fellow at Discovery Institute, he's been a consultant, writer, and guide for history and archaeology documentaries and curricula. Most important, at least for today's conversation, he has also researched and photographed the known archaeological sites and artifacts connected with the life of Jesus. That said, welcome to The Land and the Book, Dr. Kennedy.
3: Thank you for having me on the show. Glad to be here.
0: So, what inspired your passion for biblical archaeology?
3: When I was in elementary school, history was one of my favorite subjects. And then a teacher gave me a book on the excavation of Troy, which was my introduction to archaeology itself. And as I got older into middle school, I started to read some more, and I noticed that there were a lot of things in archaeology that connected to the Bible. I continued to read and study, and I saw how interesting and helpful archaeology can be, not just for us understanding the context of Scripture, but also for demonstrating the historical reliability of the Bible. And so eventually I decided this is what I want to study in college and, and try to do as a career. So let me ask, as a working archaeologist,
0: what does an average day look like? I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of variety, but if there was an average day, what is it?
3: There is plenty of variety, but if we're talking about field archaeology specifically, then it's waking up pretty early and getting ready all your tools and going to the site and digging while taking a lot of notes, coming back eventually after the dig and doing a little bit of research Uh, perhaps on some parallel sites and artifacts, and then uh, writing up your notes and things like that.
1: Hey,
0: what is the coolest thing in your judgment that you have ever been able to uh, uncover?
3: Uh, Me personally, I think one of the most interesting things was a Canaanite altar that I discovered with my team, and then we excavated it. And Mm. we think that it is one that's actually talked about in the book of Joshua or actually a, uh, a city that's talked about, not the specific altar.
0: And what city would that be?
3: Beethoven, mentioned near the city of Ai.
0: Okay. Well, no question that there has been skepticism about the literal historical Jesus since the day he walked out of his grave. So is our age, do you think, any more skeptical than previous generations or about the same? And uh, why do you say what you say?
3: It seems to me that our current age or society is more skeptical than previous ones, and I find that very strange because we now have more information than we ever have, which confirms the reliability of Scripture, and yet people are demanding more and more or just ignore it.
0: It's not every day you get to sit down with a real biblical archaeologist, but that's our privilege today on The Land and the Book as we talk with Dr. Titus Kennedy. To write this book, Excavating the Evidence for Jesus, you did a lot of firsthand research that included excavating many of the sites connected to Jesus' life. Anything surprised you, Titus, as you visited the locations where so much biblical history took place?
3: I would say one of the things that surprised me is actually the amount of information that we have, the, the number of sites that are known, which are talked about in the Gospels. I mean, nearly every place, every location that's talked about in the Gospels has been identified, and there have been some kind of archaeological work that's been done there. And then we have even so many of the specific buildings that are talked about in the Gospels we, can, we know about, we have identified, like the synagogue at Capernaum or Peter's House or the Pool of Bethesda and the Pool of Siloam and, and then the Praetorium. We could go on and on, and it's just amazing to me hmm. that so much has been left behind and we can see that and visit those places again yeah. today.
0: Many of our listeners have been to the Holy Land and most travelers visit a common list of tourist sites. Did your research take you any place outside of these, and if so, where and why?
3: One of the places in Galilee that I went to, which probably very, very few have visited, is a site on the coast of Sea of Galilee called El Araj, and it's the place that I think and some other scholars think is the Beit Saita that's talked about in the Gospels, although it's not the site commonly referred to right now as Beit Saida. That, I thought, was important to check out and see what kind of first century remains they had uncovered there and see if it fit with the Gospels. Uh, and then the other place is actually uh, some sites in Egypt that have old and traditional locations associated with the, the family of Jesus in Egypt when they fled. Uh, we don't know which or if any of those are the actual places where Jesus and his family went, but uh, it's interesting to see some extremely early churches that were built around that tradition there. Hmm.
0: What does the historical and archaeological evidence say about Jesus? Archaeologist Dr. Titus Kennedy has investigated firsthand the discoveries connected to Jesus' birth, ministry, crucifixion, and resurrection. He joins us today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, as full of questions as you are. One of mine would be, what about the the freedom to move about and do this excavating work. Uh, From the little bit that I've read, it seems like this has to be lined up and there are all kinds of forms you have to fill out and layers of Israeli government you have to go through. You were just in Egypt. You don't just dream something up one week and fly over the next. Uh, What is that process like?
3: Well, for an actual excavation, yes, there's a lot involved. You have to get permits from whatever government has jurisdiction over the site and that might be a country, but it might also be uh, a church. So there, there are some sites in which the church actually has jurisdiction, so you need to get extra permission. Uh, and then you have to find funding, which is quite difficult. And you need to assemble a team and, of course, have done a lot of research beforehand to have a plan of what you're going to do and what some past findings were, what you expect that you might be uncovering. And then after that, you know, after the actual digging, there's a huge amount of processing and publication too. So as you said, it's not just as easy as jumping on a plane and going over and digging wherever you feel like. So
0: how exactly do you respond to the claim then that Jesus is more myth than historical figure and likely didn't even exist as a person? Give us one powerful archaeological proof that maybe we haven't thought about.
3: Well, for the myth versus reality of, the Gospels, I'd say that is more of a compilation of the evidence, because if you look at a story that's mythological, you might see some real locations in those myths, like a a country that's mentioned, maybe even a city. But when it comes down to specifics, you're not going to find archaeological evidence of specifics in a myth, whereas in the Gospels, we can corroborate so many of the people, places, and events. Uh, As far as one really piece of powerful evidence, About Jesus, Uh, archaeologically, I personally think that the James Ossuary is something that's really compelling, even though it was involved in this antiquities trial. And for a while, a lot of scholars thought that it might be a forgery, but I think it's been shown to be authentic. And so it's, it's a first century inscription of Jesus. And then even more recently, there was a cup discovered in the harbor of Alexandria from the first century. That had this inscription dedication to Christ the Magician, because they were looking at him in terms of a magician who mm-hmm. performed miracles. Hmm. But it's just incredible that his fame and knowledge of him had started to spread that quickly in the middle of the first century.
0: Yeah. Dr. Titus Kennedy is a professional field archaeologist. He's written Excavating the Evidence for Jesus, What about you personally, as you're doing this excavation work, you're researching for this book, what discovery or piece of archaeology really hit home for you, made a difference for you?
3: Well, when I was excavating in Jerusalem, I was able to be part of a dig that was excavating the first century remains in Jerusalem. And so this was right from the time of Jesus before the destruction of Jerusalem, And some of the coins that we were finding there were figures named in the gospel accounts, like those of Tiberius or uh, Herod or Pilate. And it was even a house of some kind of priest or high priestly family. So a lot of connection to the gospel and just incredible to be able to dig that history yourself.
0: What are our key takeaways that you want readers to walk away with? From this book, Excavating the Evidence for Jesus?
3: Well, first, I want everybody to understand that we do have a lot of evidence from archaeology and ancient history that Jesus existed. So there should be no question about that. And there actually isn't among professional scholars, but in the general public, certainly. And the second thing I want readers to take away is that the Gospels are historically reliable and they are corroborated by a huge amount of archaeological evidence throughout the four Gospels, throughout the timeline of the life, and especially the ministry of Jesus.
0: Give us another example from biblical archaeology that would support the life of Christ, something that would be significant.
3: The trial of Jesus is something that I like to teach on, because in it we have these five major figures, and we have three locations. So we have Annas. Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, Antipas, and Jesus himself. And then we have these locations such as the high priest's house. And then we have the Sanhedrin and the Praetorium. And we we could also put in the tomb into Mm -hmm. that. But all, all of those five figures are attested archaeologically by material from the first century, as well as historians of the first and second century. And then all of those locations are known, save for maybe the the house of the high priest. The others, though, they're all known. And, you know, this is just one day in the life of Jesus, and yet we can confirm so many details of that narrative.
0: What about sharing this book with a non-believer? How likely is it the book would push them toward believing at least the biblical record of Jesus, if not the man, the Savior himself?
3: I think that this evidence would really help a non-believer or a skeptic to at least understand that the Gospels and the life of Jesus are historical, and we have a lot of evidence demonstrating that. Now, archaeology cannot prove the, the resurrection. It can't prove the deity of Christ, but they can see that what was the perspective of people in ancient times, and even even outside of Christian sources, I include some perspectives. And, and they can see that when we can confirm or when we can evaluate archaeologically, the Gospels are shown to be right.
0: That's Dr. Titus Kennedy, a professional field archaeologist. He's written Excavating the Evidence for Jesus. There's a link to that book at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Hope you'll check that out thelandandthebook.org. Much more to come on The Land and the Book. Charlie's got a great devotional you don't wanna miss, but before that, the segment coming up, we'll take a look at some Bible questions that I think will amaze you here on The Land and the Book. Appreciate your company here at The Land and the Book. I'm John Giger, seated across from Dr. Charlie Dyer, Old Testament scholar, former pastor, frequent Israel traveler, and boy, a pretty good photographer, too. Every time he goes to the Holy Land or any region nearby, he's bringing us great photos, which are always posted on our Facebook page, by the way. But this segment, Charlie, is all about listeners and their questions. Starting with Rita's, she emailed us to ask, I've been reading about when Absalom declared himself king instead of David. I use an atlas to help me picture more clearly how and where things happened. Joab found Absalom in the forest of Ephraim, but the atlas shows that forest to be in the holdings of the tribe of Gad, not the tribe of Ephraim
1: as I had expected. Can you clear this up for me, please? Reading the Bible with an atlas is a wonderful thing to do. I wish more people were doing that. And in this case, you're right in noting Absalom wasn't killed in the territory allotted to Ephraim. Ephraim's territory was on the west side of the Jordan River, but the battle took place on the east. Now I see two possible answers to the puzzle. First, some have suggested the forest of Ephraim could be the name given to the area following an earlier historical event when the tribe of Ephraim fought against Jephthah, the judge who was from Gilead. Now, that event's described in Judges 12. and it's possible the area became known as the Forest of Ephraim because it was the place where 42,000 men of Ephraim were defeated in a battle by Jephthah's forces. Now, there is a second possibility. It's a little more complex. In 2 Samuel 17, David was at Mahanaim, which was actually on the border between the tribal allotments of Manasseh and Gad there on the east of the Jordan River. So the actual battle could have taken place in the tribal allotment of Manasseh. Manasseh and Ephraim were the two sons of Joseph, given, in effect, a double portion among the tribes. Now, of the two, Ephraim's the most dominant. Joshua was from Ephraim. So it's at least possible that the forest which was right across the river from Ephraim, was named for the more dominant of the two brothers, even though the land itself might have been in the territory of Manasseh. But in either case, whatever it is, I think there is a good explanation, but you're right in looking at it. Looking at a Bible atlas raises questions, but it also helps us dig deeper into God's Word.
0: Thanks for that question, Rita. Here's one from Mark, who is interested in your thoughts, Charlie, on women's roles in the church. He says, our church does not designate women as pastors, but there are women in what they call director roles. Thank you for any thoughts.
1: Yeah, and I need to start by focusing on what I see as the biblical boundaries for leadership. I believe the Bible limits the role of elder to men. I'd also include senior pastor leaders in that role since they do function in the role of elders. Now, at the same time, the Bible does not limit the distribution of spiritual gifts by gender. Both men and women can possess, for example, the gift of teaching or administration. Now, I've been in churches where spiritually gifted women serve in different leadership roles other than uh, that of elder or senior pastor. And to me, the strategic point is how each church defines those roles under the leadership of the elders and pastoral staff.
0: You're listening to The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host. We're going through a list of questions that have been emailed to us. Yours is welcome anytime at the land and the book at Moody.edu. Alan says, recently I heard of a proposal for the Ben-Gurion Canal from Eilat on the southeastern end of Israel to the Mediterranean Sea. What is the story on this project? Will there be an Israeli alternative to the Suez Canal?
1: Yeah, I've heard of this project being proposed at various times in the past, but it's never moved beyond the concept stage. And yet, my gut feeling is it won't progress for two basic reasons. And the first is geographical. While the Red Sea and the Mediterranean Sea start out at the same basic elevation, you know, that is sea level, but there are some significant mountains between the two bodies of water. Down by a lot, the mountains and valleys in the wilderness are very extensive. It's hard for me to even envision a route that wouldn't require major construction work to make any way through possible. Uh, The second problem is security. A canal would be a fixed target, and both Iran, Hamas, and the Houthis would see it as a tempting one at that. Uh, One drone strike against a ship could bottle up the canal for weeks or months, and that possibility would make it more likely for ships to choose the Suez Canal instead of any canal through Israel. Now, it would be nice for Israel to be able to offer an alternative to the Suez Canal. I just don't see it happening anytime soon.
0: Roger writes, I continue to enjoy The Land and the Book on your podcast every week. If you're not taking advantage of that podcast, by the way, you should. It's right there at thelandandthebook.org. Anyway, he says, "Is there any excavated evidence that Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house, or was his name stricken from all monuments, obelisks, books, and tablets, as portrayed in the 1956 movie The Ten Commandments?"
1: Yeah, I don't know of any direct archaeological evidence that has Moses's name, you know, chiseled off a monument or eliminated from other records. And uh, since he never ruled as Pharaoh, I'm, I'm not sure if we ever will. However, I believe there is indirect evidence that supports the biblical account. For example the name Moses closely matches other Egyptian royal names of the same period. Uh, several pharaohs in the 18th dynasty, which is the dynasty connected with the time of the Exodus, uh, were named, for example, Amos, which means son of the moon god, or uh, Thutmose, son of the god Toth. Uh, Moses' name in Hebrew comes from the word for pull or draw out, but in Egyptian, it has the idea of son. Another example is the chronology of Egypt just prior to the Exodus indicates a daughter of Pharaoh named Hatshepsut who actually reigned for a time as Pharaoh. When she died, the next Pharaoh had her monuments defaced. She had the force of character that matches the biblical account of a Pharaoh's daughter willing to defy Pharaoh's orders regarding Hebrew children and raise one as her own son. Now, I believe details like that closely match and indirectly help confirm the biblical account. Terry
0: asks, would Mount Moriah be one the place where Abraham was to sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt offering, two, the threshing floor David purchased, three, the site on which the temple Solomon built, and four, the Dome of the Rock. Are they all one and the same location?
1: Yeah, and the short answer is that Mount Moriah is the same location in all cases. Mount Moriah is the large hill or mountain that was just north of the original city of Salem or Jebus. It's where Abraham was sent to sacrifice Isaac. Later, on top of that hill, uh, there was a threshing floor owned by a round of the Jebusite, and uh, that was purchased by David. Solomon then built the temple on that site, I think with the specific rock where Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, becoming the spot in the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant rested. Well, today, the Dome of the Rock is built on that specific rock. So the Dome of the Rock is on Mount Moriah, but Mount Moriah itself encompassed a larger area than just that one rock.
0: Ryan asks, why did Christ only heal complete bodies, never a severed limb nor detached head? In the entirety of the word of God, there is no mention of such a feat. The only indirect example would be Christ healing the Roman soldier in the garden. However, the text doesn't say that Christ put his ear back on, only that Christ healed the soldier. Your thoughts, Charlie?
1: I would actually challenge though, that statement about the healing of the high priest's servant mm-hmm. whose ear had been severed. You would say it's an indirect example, but Matthew actually says the servant's ear was cut off, and the Greek word used has the idea of remove, cut off, or carry off. So the ear was definitely severed from his body. You know, John uh, even adds that Peter was the one who wielded the sword for that. But Luke, who's also a physician, adds the fact that Jesus touched the man's ear and healed him. Now, the word Luke uses for healed has the idea of healing or curing. And the word translated touched actually has the idea of grasping the ear that had been severed. And then it says he healed the man. my point is that since the ear had been cut off, being healed must have been more than simply Jesus stopping the flow of blood. He first reached for the ear and then healed the man, suggesting he actually reattached the ear to the man's body. So I really do believe this event was a miraculous reattachment and healing of the servant's ear. Now, I can't answer why something isn't in the Bible, mm-hmm. but in this case, I believe there's at least one case where healing involved the reattachment of a body part rather than just a complete body healing, as you describe it.
0: Holly says, we love your Saturday program on KMBI radio. That's a nice thought. Appreciate that, Holly. Her question in Deuteronomy 9, verse 10, God gave Moses the tablets of the law, but in Deuteronomy 10, verse 1, Moses was told to cut out his own tablets to bring up the mountain. Is there
1: a lesson or reason for this difference? Well, you know, in that part of Deuteronomy, Moses is reviewing what took place with the previous generation in the wilderness. And indeed, in the original account, there were two sets of stone tablets. The first set were created directly by God and given to Moses. Uh, you see that in, in Exodus 31 and in first part of Exodus chapter 32. And those are the tablets Moses smashed when he came down from the mountain and saw the people worshiping a golden calf. God then commanded Moses to chisel new tablets and bring them up to the mountain where God wrote on them the same words as before. That's in Exodus chapter 34. Now, I believe the point of Moses destroying the first set of commandments was to illustrate that the people had broken God's law before Moses could even bring it down from Mount Sinai. Now, I'm not sure why God required Moses to prepare that new set of tablets, but the fact is that God then wrote on them and it shows that the words were still directly from the hand of God.
0: Well, did you know that most Jewish people have never heard the gospel? Each week we talk about Israel and the Jewish people, and it's important to remember
1: that they, like everyone else, need to hear the good news. That's right. Life and Messiah, a ministry in existence for over 130 years, is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people around the world. We've interviewed several Life and Messiah staff on our show, and we've enjoyed hearing what God is doing around the world through them. Well, now Life in Messiah is offering a free gift to Moody listeners. It's a resource called Reaching Jewish People for Messiah. And receiving your gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook, which highlights the need for the gospel among the Jewish people, and it'll help equip you with practical ways to share the good news with them. Thanks, Charlie. We're looking forward to your devotional. It's next on The Land and the Book.
0: We're so glad that you've carved out time to be with us today on The Land of the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Charlie is something of an artist. Uh, He paints pictures with words, particularly pictures of places in the Middle East portraits of scriptures themselves through his words. And today is no exception. You're taking us to Psalm 120. You've titled today's devotional, Prayers in Lonely Places. I can't help but think Jesus himself spent a lot of time praying in lonely places. Indeed he did.
1: And Jesus spent time in the wilderness, which is exactly where we're going to head as well. All right. I'm looking forward to it. Let's hear it. Okay. Well, our journey today takes us out into the wilderness to a Bedouin tent. Hmm. We're heading there for dinner, but Before dinner, how would you like to go on a camel ride? Since I've ridden a camel before, I'll stay here to guard your belongings as you swing and sway on your ship of the desert. But do me one favor. Watch and see if you can get any pictures of a broom tree during your desert safari. Look for a green shrub about 5 to 10 feet tall and that, at least from a distance, looks as if it's almost covered in pine needles. Back so soon? Well, it's good because it's almost time for dinner, Bedouin style. Take a look at that cooking fire. That black inverted saucer above it is the cooktop. You can already see the flatbread cooking there. And just off to the side is the coffee pot where they're boiling Arabic coffee. You can have my share. And trust me, a little goes a long way. Now look more closely at the fire. See those red hot coals? They almost remind you of charcoal burning in a grill, but these briquettes are actually the wood of the broom tree you saw out in the wilderness. That wood is hard and dense and it creates a very hot fire. The sun's gone down and you're starting to feel the chill of the night air as the heat of the day radiates out into space. So gather around this warm fire as we look at solitary prayers from lonely places. And our passage for this study is Psalm 120 the first of that group of psalms known as the Psalms of Ascents. These 15 psalms, from 120 through 134, were composed at different times by different writers. But at some point they were collected together and used as a group. Most likely the collection took place during or after the Babylonian captivity. And it's possible that the title, Psalms of Ascents, was given because these psalms were sung by the pilgrims during the three annual feasts when they ascended or came up to Jerusalem to gather before God. Psalm 120 was placed at the head of the parade, the first of the psalms these pilgrims were to recite. We would expect this to be a joyous occasion, since the pilgrims were on their way to Jerusalem. But this psalm begins by focusing not on the happiness that was ahead, but on the heartache surrounding the writer on all sides. Let's peer over the shoulder of this unknown psalmist as he cries out in prayer to God. In my trouble, I cried to the Lord, and he answered me. We're faced with an immediate translation problem. Hebrew doesn't have past, present, or future tenses. They need to be supplied by the context. So, is the psalmist saying he cried and God answered, actions that have already taken place, or is he saying, in my trouble, I cried to the Lord and he answers, suggesting he's in the middle of the problem and anticipating God's answer momentarily. From the rest of the psalm, I think this is the better translation. The psalmist is facing a problem and crying out to God for help, but even as he cries, he knows by faith that God will answer. The first verse is something of a summary statement, but in the next three verses, the psalmist tells us in more detail about the trouble he's facing. He asks God to deliver him from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. These are actually figures of speech. After all, the lips and the tongue don't do anything by themselves. It's the person behind the lips and tongue who tell them what to do. The word deceitful actually has the idea of beguiling or misleading. Now, we're not sure if these evil people are lying to the psalmist or lying about the psalmist. But the second seems most likely. They were probably spreading vicious rumors about him. If you've ever had anyone slander you or lie about you, or try to deceive others into believing harmful and hurtful things about you, then you know how this psalmist felt. And he asks God to judge the evil person in an appropriate way. The enemy's slanderous words were like arrows piercing into the psalmist's innermost being, or like a burning ember searing his very soul. So he warns his enemy that God was about to shoot sharp arrows back at him and burn him with the same burning coals of the broom tree. And that's why we've come here. Stop for a second and look back at the fire. Those hot glowing coals came from the broom tree and they're a great object lesson. The psalmist is under attack, but he refuses to lash back. Instead, he commits the situation to God whose white hot sense of justice and righteousness will eventually guarantee that the wicked will be punished and the righteous will be vindicated. He doesn't know when, but he's confident God will balance the scales of justice at the proper time. We've all faced times of loneliness and heartache when we've been slandered, maligned, or unfairly attacked. And the psalmist is reminding us that in those times we can cry out to God and be assured that he's listening. Now, that doesn't mean he'll always intervene according to our timetable. In fact, look carefully at what the psalmist says next. Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshach, for I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. The psalmist is using poetic language, but real places, to describe his condition. Meshach was far to the north of Israel in Central Asia, while Kedar was far to the south on the Arabian Peninsula. The psalmist uses these distant lands to describe his own sense of alienation and exile. Metaphorically, he feels far away from the place of security we all know as home. Like Dorothy trapped in Oz, the psalmist wants to tap his heels together and cry out, There's no place like home. He longs for peace, but his adversaries want to fight and do battle. But what does all of this have to do with us? Well, look around at this Bedouin tent where we're now seated. It's not a permanent structure. And when the psalmist said he felt as if he was dwelling in those foreign lands, he used words that picture a temporary dwelling, words that can be translated sojourn and tabernacle. He felt unsettled, but that's because he wasn't yet home. And as you journey through life, there'll be times when you'll be misunderstood and maligned by those who don't like you and who might even want to do you harm. And this psalm can help you make it through those times. How? Well, first... The psalmist reminds us to pray. Let God know the struggles you're facing. And then turn the matter over to God. Don't allow yourself to become a prisoner to anger or bitterness. Instead, let God dispense His justice in His good time. And finally, realize that you're not yet home. Like Israel in the wilderness, we're just sojourners in this life on our way to that heavenly promised land. Much like the description of Abraham in Hebrews 11, we might have a sense of incompleteness today, but that's because we're still looking for the city, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The next time you're struggling because someone has mistreated you, don't lash back. Instead, remind yourself that this isn't your final destination. And then look at the hot, burning coals of the broom tree. And remember that God will resolve the issue in his own good time, as long as you're willing to hand your problems over to Him. Good word. Thank you, Charlie. Paul writes to
0: say, I really enjoy listening to the land and the book. I find it to be very interesting and informative as a big supporter of Israel. Well, I'm guessing you are a supporter of Israel if you're listening to the land and the book. And if you appreciate the ministry, we'd love to know how it's making a difference for you. Maybe you've got some ideas for us. Hey, we're wide open. Why not email us? Start the conversation with your email at the land and the book at moody.edu, the land and the book at moody.edu. Now, I'm sure it's no surprise to you, but this program doesn't assemble itself. The guests don't get recorded automatically. The edits that we need to make, you know, those mistakes that happen once in a while? Yeah, quite a bit. They need to be fixed, too. It all takes time. It all takes resources. It takes equipment, software, licensing, and a long list of stuff that all costs money. My point We'd love it if you'd go to our website, thelandandthebook.org, and and click on the link that will allow you to say thank you for The Land and the Book, the link that will help you support us, keep us on the air. Again, the link is there at our secure website, thelandandthebook.org. Your gift will be used carefully and prayerfully. So thanks for your generosity online at thelandandthebook.org. The The Land and the Book comes to you as the result of a great team effort. And that team, of course, includes Charlie Dyer, yours truly, and Dan Anderson putting it all together. Thanks for listening to The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.